Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we have another exciting show for today. Today's guest is an experienced leader skilled in leading high-performing teams that drive operational efficiency, enable strategy, and solve complex problems throughout the enterprise. He's a certified project management professional and a senior manager of process improvement, business architecture, and organizational change management at United Airlines. Please welcome to the show, Todd Gernady. Hello, Todd. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. And as we always do, I want to get started and ask you for what you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today. That's a, that's a great question. Um, so I, I, when I think as far as deskless uh, employees, of course, I think you get through the lens of, of United Airlines. So I think probably one of the biggest challenges is the amount of information that these people need to do their job. Um, if you think about it, they all need information to, to complete with whatever tasks they're needing. So from an airline perspective, uh, our maintenance folks are needing manuals, books, drawings, schematics of the aircraft. Um, pilots and flight attendants used to carry around these 30 pound books of, uh, of manuals that they needed to carry around. Um, so when you think about that, we want to en enable mobility in those, in those regards. So getting them the information, but also the challenge of that, the tools they have, you know, the size. So screen the, the amount of real estate that we have um, to enable them to, to get all that information, to make it something that's they can actually read it on a mobile a mobile device um, and still be efficient. And it's, there's, there's a lot of success stories we've had with that at United. We've had the tech ops folks used to be very paper reliant. There's still a little bit, but getting them iPads. So while they're working uh, on an airplane engine, they could pull up what they need. There's a lot of tools that are right there. The pilots and the flight attendants um, actually carry mobile devices as well. So they're no longer needing to carry these heavy books that they're actually required to, to have on each flight. So having that at their fingertips and, and even our, our gate agent folks um, if you've ever flown you often notice they're they're behind a podium they're you know on that computer um, but this effort to try to get them in front of the podium and giving them mobile devices so that way they can they can take care of take care of you um, but as things get more complex again more information needed so how do you get them that information uh, especially on a, on a smaller screen I, I love that we're talking about this. I've actually done a fair amount of work uh, in the airline space and am familiar with some of the, the worker profiles that you just talked about from tech ops to you know the pilots and flight attendants and gate agents and stuff like that. And you, you said something else. I want to give a shout out to, uh, to my co-host and, and colleague, uh, Gene, who has often said that we think about knowledge workers as the, the white collar workers that work in a corporate environment. And then we think about frontline workers as the opposite of knowledge workers and that that's not a fair way to represent them. And I agree with yeah. him. And I think you just said that, right? The way you started that was the amount of information that they need to do their jobs. And that's really powerful. Frontline workers are also knowledge workers. They're dealing with a massive amount of information. They have a massive amount of knowledge that it's required to do their job. They're yeah. also having to use their hands. They're also working in the physical world, but they're not doing that as an exception to being a knowledge worker. They're doing that in addition to being a knowledge worker. And so uh, the, the way you just described that and talking about all of the attempts to innovate through technology to bring more uh, knowledge to them and allow them to work with data and information when and where they need it is, is really powerful. And it, it really speaks to something I think is so important about frontline innovators is that that those are the men and women that we're, we're trying to empower and enable to be uh, you know, more successful in their job through technology. So that was an awesome way to kick us off today. Oh, good. I'm glad I could help with your kickoff. And I agree 100%. <laughs> absolutely knowledge workers. And 
not only that, but being efficient, um, you mentioned tech ops or the maintenance <laughs> folks that before technology, if you've, you've been to an airport, um, they're not small areas. So you might've had to walk 15 minutes to the office to get a manual or a book on that aircraft you were working on, bring it back another 15 minutes and suddenly up, oh, I now I need this document. There was a lot of back and forth and a lot of wasted time uh, as far as that walking. So yeah, absolutely, they, they need a lot of knowledge and information, but also you know, these are things that help make them more efficient. So they don't have to run to a desk or, or somewhere to, to get that information. Yeah. You know, just digging back into my uh, my archives, one of the things I remember about dealing with some of our airline partners is that, and I don't I don't think necessarily that people think about this, although if you've been a part of the flying public, you you would recognize it, is that the the pace of change of that information is like unlike any other industry I think I've worked around, you know, just simple things like gate changes, right? The number of gate changes that happen at major airports and how your teams inside United are having to adjust every moment down to the second, down to the minute to deal with something just as simple as gate changes. So we think it's a pain in the butt as a traveler that, you know, we just had to move from one gate to another. But when you think about all of the operations that are happening around that gate change and the humans that now have to do something different in their job because that's changed. It's really profound. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it, you think about too now that traveling in the, in a pandemic. Uh, on top of that, now there's the whole COVID factor. And depending on where I'm traveling, I, I need a specific test. What test will this this country accept? Uh, am I vaccinated? So um, just an, an increase in that information. And you also make a good point as far as the amount of work that goes off into getting a flight to take off. Um, that's another great piece of, of that technology too, as far as that deskless employee, because uh, if I'm a, if I'm a flight attendant, I can use my device to collaborate with my partners and letting the gate agent know, Hey, we're out of overhead space. You're going to need to start bag checking versus you get on the plane and you're halfway up and suddenly, Oh, we're out of space. Now you got to back up, but you've got 50 people behind you still. Um, so, so doing things like that, and, and certainly you, if you start to think about it, it, it absolutely affects the, the customer experience. So the, the more streamlined we can be, the, the better that experience is for that customer. Yeah. I, so I'm going to have to hesitate because I could just start digging into all these topics, but I just got to cover one last topic before we move on, which is your business has more people that are doing things behind the scenes but yet are right in view of the customer. So if you contrast that with like a manufacturer that's making products that we consume, none of us get to see when and where the toilet paper gets made and how it ends up on the shelves at our grocery store, right? So mm -hmm. it's just all we see is the end product. But in the airline business, we're actually watching that process through these massive windows where we can look out on the ramp and we can see what the, the crew on the, the tarmac is doing and how they're loading bags and how things are moving around and the carts that are coming and going and the gate agents that are sitting right there trying to deal with all the passengers. And so they are the ultimate frontline workers that they are literally out on the front lines of your business and they're having to deal with us customers and mm -hmm. you know keep keep the operations running at the same time. It's, it's just a really challenging business and I, I can't wait to dig into it more with you. So yeah. let's be, before we go any further down that path, let's, let's talk about you. Um, how did you end up where you're at? What are some of the, the personal and professional milestones that you've had throughout your life that have led you to, uh, to the role that you have in your profession today? Yeah. Good, good question. So, uh, I'd say the most common response I get any organization that I interview for or go to is, Oh, you have a music degree, um, which, which surprises most, um, which is true. So started with music, used to play and perform and um, not the most steady uh, of, of paychecks. So went into sales, dabbled there and fell into consulting, actually. Um, and it was when I fell into consulting, loved it, thought it was so fascinating. The person I worked with said, hey, I think you'd be good at this. Um, made him my mentor. And he said, the music degree, not going to help you. So suggested doing an MBA, which I did, and that helped. Um, got different certifications, Six Sigma, and started to do consulting a lot, especially around process improvement. And obviously, there's a big piece of that in, in the change management uh, component of, of you, you want to implement a process. You, you need people to adopt that process. 
So um, kind of continuing uh, on in my, in my journey, I went from consulting to United and very much what I, I call kind of an internal consultancy. So when you introduced me, um, it's probably the record for the longest title ever. But as far as those things I own, um, there's those components. So it's very much a hybrid that we've put together. Um, the business architecture component is really that bridge between IT and the business. So it's understanding the business's problem. How do they do it? What's the process like today? What should the ideal process be? And then translating that to IT. So there's a, a common language. They understand exactly what it is we're changing. The process improvement component, pretty self-explanatory. We're doing process improvement focused on technology. And then the change management is something that was recently uh, dropped in our lap, and that's enter enterprise uh, change management, specifically around um, technology initiatives and things that we need to, to implement there. So a, a large part of my career at, at United in, in the past has been really helping groups and businesses solve problems. And, I, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but I think for me, when you talk about change management, a huge proponent of that is getting the folks you're, you're, who are going to be affected by that change to feel like they are part of designing that change. So um, I think historically, a lot of companies and IT departments would sort of build solutions and they'd throw it over the ivory wall and hope it's stuck. And more often than not, the business would get and go, eh, this isn't really what we wanted. Thank you anyway. They go buy something off the shelf. They give it to IT and say, here, we want you to manage this. And um, you hope it goes well. So a lot of the stuff I get involved with is we get people involved from the business. Um, so if we're doing something that affects the, the McCain maintenance group or the tech ops folks, um, we actually get folks from tech ops in the room with us as far as understanding, you know, what's the pain points, what's the issues you're dealing with today, what's your process like today? And then as we sort of redesign it, hey, what should this look like? What would, what would it look like in an ideal state? Um, they get excited. They've been heard as far as what's the issue and, the, and sort of their grievances. And then they're excited because now they're helping design something that in the future that's going to help improve. So that's uh, where I think there's definitely a nice correlation in adding change management certainly, certainly made sense there. So. Wow. All right. We've got a ton of things to talk about. Um, and, and my first question is actually, did having a music degree help with your MBA? <laughs> Um, in, in some ways, I suppose so. Um, music majors don't really have to take math. So the math part was, was the biggest challenge. But uh, I, I think the analytical piece, I, I had somebody once uh, when I made a joke about it, he said, hey, don't joke about that. If you, you can tear apart a Beethoven symphony and analyze it, uh, he goes, uh, you can analyze a business process. And I was like, that's a very good point. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Well, I appreciate you you sharing your story and how you ended up, uh, you know, where you're at today. And and I I actually love the combination of things that you know I, I know you were kind of making light of your title and and it being very long and it, it encapsulates a lot of things. But those things are all very important and all very interrelated. And um, you know I love the way that you said it, which is that you know if, if you're going to be doing process improvement consulting, if you're going to be looking for ways to improve the business, that ultimately you have to have people adopt those processes. And that's, that's a big part of the theme of this podcast, which is that to truly innovate on the front lines, it isn't actually just about the technology that you're trying to implement on the front lines. It's, it's actually probably more important to deal with how we're going to get engagement uh, from those yeah. folks. And, and to do that, we've got to be more deliberate and thoughtful about you know, how we communicate and how we handle the change with them. Right. The technology is really just a tool. It's an enabler. It's, it is. A large piece of it is that process. Yeah. So one of the things that, I don't know if this will be good or bad for the show that I've done so much work around the airlines, but one of the things that um, really stands out to me as a challenge for folks in your role is, and, and I should be clear, I've never done any work with United or any of the, the companies that fed into what is today United. Okay. So mm -hmm. I've, I've worked okay. with some of the other, some of your other industry peers, but there's, there's some delineation between the, the work groups you just mentioned, right? You've got pilots, you've got flight attendants, you've got tech ops, right? You've got right. gate agents and they're all very distinct groups. N not so much that they kind of act like they work for different companies, but they have very distinctive roles. Uh, they, they're 
most often represented by different unions, right? So there's definitely some lines of delineation between their roles and responsibilities that are clearly cut out, yet they all have to work together. And you mentioned an orchestra before, right? They have to, they have to be able to work together like, like an orchestra. How does that affect when you're thinking about a change management specific to a project with gate agents, for example? Like, do you have to take into account the change that will be impacted by the, the pilots and the flight attendants and the other folks that, that impact them? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So I, kind of a, a, a little story. Um, so I, the business architecture piece. So when I would introduce the team uh, to, a, you know, in a workshop, I, I generally would get sort of blank stares as far as business architecture. I, I have no idea what that even is during headlights. Um, and I would often equate it to if we wanted to, so we're Willis Towers, our, our headquarters for, for United Airlines in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So I would often equate it to it. Say, okay, so let's say we want to do construction and we want to remodel the, the Willis Tower. I could give all of you sledgehammers, and I could tell you, let's all start taking walls down, and let's hope it goes okay. Or the smart thing, I get an architect who draws a design, a schematic. So now I know which walls are load bearing, which walls have plumbing and electrical running for. Maybe that's electrical and plumbing running for the whole building. So um, with that schematic we're going to be more methodical and which walls we take out and how we go about that. Well, I'd say a lot of companies operate more with the, the mentality of the sledgehammer where they just take out walls and, and sort of disregard for those dependencies. And then it's usually the 11th hour where you have a team throw red flag on you and say, well, time out. This is not going to work for the pilot group or the accounting group. Um, we need to, you know, this process isn't going to work. This system's not going to work. Um, and that obviously slows things down. It slows down momentum, but it's, it's, it's just you know, not good. It's rework. So I think as far as to your comment, absolutely important. So if I'm working on something that relates to the gate agents, um, for, as your example, I think that you know, it's, it's critical. And that's where the business architect in us goes about looking for those impacts. So based on the capabilities I'm, I'm impacting, um, in addition to check-in. So think about a gate agent, they're doing check-in, but who else is dependent on that check-in? Well, for those of you who don't know it, there's a load balancing team. They want to make sure that we actually load the plane correctly. So it's, um, it's leveled out and you don't take off with a, you know, the nose up or, or, or down. Um, so as I sort of know those dependencies that might tell me, okay, do I need to involve the gate agent, the gate agent folks? and the load balancing folks. Um, is there anybody else? Um, do I need to have the pilot group? So you absolutely want to make sure that you understand, you know, who, who needs a seat at the table and who just needs to be uh, informed of, of this change. So that way you don't get at the 11th hour, another group or labor group, t- you know, calling you on and saying, hang on, we didn't know about this, you know, time out. So in my experience, I, I, I love the way you just described that. And in, in my experience, it really elongates the planning process. And, and I can tell you one of the things, you know, I've never worked for an airline, so I've always been on the, the, the vendor partner side, right. Trying to help implement change inside. And when we did that, I, I always felt like, man, we are just like, it, it takes so long to get something done. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that we should be taking shortcuts on communication, like you were just describing, but I, I'm curious, uh, maybe not shortcuts because that's negative, but are, are there steps that you have found that allow that process to, hap- process to happen more rapidly so that the technology is not outdated by the time you put together a plan to actually implement it? That's a good question. So I, I, when our team gets involved, often... I'm sure we get a lot of eye rolls from the project managers because there's there are folks who want to go, go, go. I want a solution now. Um, we sort of pull back on the reins to your point, like, hey, we need to plan. We need to figure some things out. Those who used our team in the past often would come back and say, yeah, I, maybe I spent three, four weeks with your team planning and building up process models and so forth. And they're like, well, it seems on paper that would take us longer. They said, we, we actually feel it helped us accelerate because it helped us navigate it. We built a roadmap and it allowed us to remove some of those obstacles and avoid potholes down the road versus things that we would have stubbed our toe on. And rework, I will guarantee you, will often take you longer to resolve than it is to catch it in the moment. If you've ever built a Lego set with with your kids, you know, if you've screwed up something on step 12 and you are on step 32, 
is very painful to take all those Legos apart so you can fix that one piece and go back and do it again. So um, I think as far as, you know, tips to move faster, I think if you spend the time planning and figuring those things out, uh, it'll absolutely help, um, help you accelerate in the end. That being said, um, you want to avoid that analysis paralysis and, and, and boiling the ocean. So understanding what's, what's the level of information I need, um, who's absolutely necessary to, to have at the table. Um, and maybe you have somebody, you know, a, a competent or somebody on that product project who can call you out as far as the team and, and letting, you know, Hey, I, I, you know, I think, I think we've got the level of information we need. Um, I think we're starting to boil the ocean now. So you know, let's, let's move on. So uh, I think that's sort of the tips I would give. Is there science to what you just said? Because I, I think what you just said is really important, which is at some point you can only do so much discovery and communication, right? When is enough enough? Is that, do you have a scientific method for that? Or is that just in the art of your role of saying, my gut tells me that we could keep asking questions or keep pursuing this further. And it just, that diminishing returns are kicking in here. That's a good, I'd love to say there is some science. I'd say there's a little bit of science and a lot of art. I would say the science behind it is you always want to know what, it, what is the problem you're, you're working towards solving. So, uh, you know, if a group says this is an issue, well, you know, what is the true problem you're, you're trying to solve and what's the objective, what's the outcome you're looking for. So at least for me, if I feel like I have enough information that I can answer those questions, like, do I have enough information to answer the problem we're trying to solve, the objective, the outcome we're, we're headed towards. Um, usually to me, that's a sign that, okay, I've, I've got enough information. I don't need to get more you know, deeper in. Um, and there's sort of the loads of levels of information. When we build out a process model, for example, we sort of have levels that we want to go down to. So, you know, a click level or like a, a, a level five, for example, might too much details for some projects, other projects where maybe I'm building a training manual or book, then absolutely, I need to make sure I have that click by click. But, the, you know, for building strategy, level one might be high enough. Four, five, seven boxes sort of indicating like, here's sort of the, the path we need to get towards the outcome. Uh, and then if I need a little more detail, or if there's people involved in the working team, you're going to have folks who are gathering requirements and so forth. If you're getting blank looks or questions from those groups, I think that's another sign um, that I need a little more information if there's open questions and confusion. So I, I suppose there's a little more of the science for you. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really good. Uh, and, and some of the other folks that we've had on the show have talked about kind of surveying. Um, I, I don't think that they were talking about it necessarily in this exact context, but they were talking about surveying the people that will be affected by change to kind of gauge their readiness for that change, not from a knowledge perspective necessarily, but just from a, a communication and standpoint. And so I, as I'm listening to you talk about it, I guess part of that is um, figuring out when you're ready, right? When you've communicated enough, when enough of the people understand what's coming down the pipe, why it's coming down the pike, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so do you have, I mean, when I talk about survey mechanisms and things like that, does that resonate with you? Is that a tool that you would keep in your bag as something that you would use to assess their readiness for change and to figure out if you've done enough discovery and communication to be successful? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's, Depending on the change, you you know, because there are certainly changes, at least for us that are are regulatory or FFA man, you know, FAA right. mandatory. And so even if I go out and the, and the teams are not ready or necessarily we don't want this change, there are cases where we're doing it anyway. <laughs> we're doing it. Sorry, um, but there's absolutely I think those 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 key aspects of one do they do they understand and see the, see the pain so. Um, you know, it's, it's great if you can bring in those folks, uh, we keep going to the gate agents. So if I bringing in those gate agents and having them say it in their own voice that this is the problem, this is the pain point. Um, those to me, that's a sign that we're ready for change that, you know, if they're complaining about it, um, there's an appetite for change versus I'm, I'm a little more hesitant and scared when you go into a group and they don't see a problem. No, everything's working great. Well, why would you want it? Why would you want to change anything? If they're not convinced, you're going to really have an uphill battle. So, um, so yeah, absolutely, I agree. Not you know, and not only are they ready for the change, but then 
further down the road in, in this, I certainly, if I don't want to steal your thunder, if you're going down this path later, but when you think about like, like AdCar, the ability to change, but also the change impact to them. So how big is this impact going to be for this change for, for this person? Is this a small change? Is this a medium change? Is this a large change? Uh, sort of t-shirt sizing there. And that might also help me construct a communications model. So small change, maybe some sort of way informing them, a, a newsletter, an email versus a large change. Maybe we need to have classroom training and so forth. So um, I think those analyses are, are, are critical as far as you planning really to, to make sure that your, your change is adopted and well-received. I, I don't want, I'm not asking for you to like call out your colleagues and other departments inside the organization. So I, I, I just want to kind of set that <laughs> disclaimer out. Okay. But, but I'm also curious to hear, you mentioned before about when project teams engage us and you, you were talking about it in the context of saying upfront, they may feel like there's a big time investment initially but in the long run, they recognized that it was a, it was an investment that paid dividends. And in fact, the project wasn't uh, longer after all, even when they were more thoughtful and, and deliberate about change management. Sure. Uh, I'm curious maybe what you've seen or some of the outcomes when they haven't engaged your team. Have you been there in a capacity to have to come in later to clean clean up a mistake to some extent to perhaps try to get a project back on track when maybe they should have engaged your team sooner, or maybe they just didn't know that your team existed to, to kind of pull you in on something like that. I'm, I'm curious to hear kind of the other side when things didn't go as well as maybe everybody thought. Yeah. Um, it, it, so yeah, that does happen. I, I certainly will not name any, any names. We've yeah, certainly not I, trying to do that. I'm just trying to learn yeah, from those yeah. experiences and, and really maybe help somebody else that is thinking about the pros and cons of engaging a team like yours, and maybe they have some apprehension to doing that, and maybe we can help learn from from the experiences. That that's really the nature of the question and why I'd ask it. Yeah, no, so that's fair. And we've had, so I have had that. I've had um, where, where we get calls, um, and again, I think our team is that you know that mix, that architecture piece, the, the and the change management piece. So we've certainly gotten that call that hey, we you know we we had a steer co and it didn't go well. And they said, we should come talk to you. Um, and, you know, and sort of investigating and digging like, well, what, what happened? Well, we, um, we missed a few capabilities. We forgot a couple of groups that we just we completely missed. Um, we don't have a clear understanding of, you know, what problem we're trying to solve or, or the, what the solution should, should look like. Um, you know, we, we didn't take the time to necessarily build out, understand the current state process. So as we're, we're, we went right to sort of future state and it's, um, and it's just not testing well. And, you know, so a lot of it comes down to sort of the, the lack of the, of the planning. They, they really tried to jump too many steps ahead and we're forced to come back. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, we're, we're glad to help and jump in and kind of retrace some steps and, and, and get them back into a, you know, a good place again. I, I love that idea of, of retracing the steps. I, I can think of a few circumstances I'm aware of right now where I think that's probably necessary inside a, a large organization where maybe they, I love the way you said that, and just in terms of skipping some of the steps that to you as an OCM professional are probably clear as day, but maybe some of the project team didn't even realize that they were skipping steps or perhaps just the importance of the steps that they were skipping. Yes. And honestly, I can't emphasize enough. Um, I'm a process nerd. So knowing the process, what is that process? Uh, before United worked at a consulting firm, and that was one of the partners used to always say, start with the process. And I remember having a client there um, who they put out a training manual and it was a disaster. Um, it was not correct. And people were complaining and then, hey, this is I'm not getting the result. And we dug in and it was nobody bothered to outline a process was, was really the issue. So we getting involved and in sort of diagramming the process and then you'd compare it to that training book and be like, yeah, no, no wonder this isn't working very well because your process tells me this and your, your training manual or playbook is telling me to do something totally different. You have, you know, you have step one and then you jump to 13 and then you're back to six. So, um, I, I think again, that's a that's a critical piece that will help teams sort of navigate and know what does that roadmap look like. 
Well, another thing along those lines that you're reminding me of when you share that is in the airlines, there is such um, the, the, there's a challenge of localization. And what I mean by that is that no matter how much you as an airline try to standardize your processes and procedures across your entire network globally, that there's a lot of nuance at every station that you operate in, right? Absolutely. Because uh, they're not facilities that you own. You know, they're, you're just sharing space in there with, with your competitors and, and other industry players, right? And somebody else owns that space. And so the, the layout, you know, and I, I always use the example of Home Depot and I hope none of our friends at Home Depot would be insulted by this, but like most of their stores are laid out virtually identically, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they've made the decision that they can standardize that and kind of cookie cutter their approach. That's part of how they scale their business. You don't have that luxury, right? The, you know, uh, operating at one airport is completely different from operating as at another airport. So how does that, affect how you as a process improvement and change management team go about kind of getting dialed in so that you can make sure that you're not leaving out those nuances that are different in Chicago than they are in Atlanta? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, first of all, we, you know, so two things, we try to focus on the 85 percentile. Um, so, you know, of 85 percent that that's commonly done. And as far as from the stations to station, there's there's probably a lot of standard things that, you know, that they do, you know, we're boarding a plane in, in, in Atlanta and we, we board a plane in Guam and there's probably not a lot of differences. So where can we standardize? Understanding there are nuances. Um, we try not to, to get into the art. So that gets into that level of detail because uh, I'm going to have a spaghetti map and I'm going to, and I'm probably going to spend months and months and months putting every scenario down. So, um, Generally, in those cases, it's let's, well, let's not necessarily get in the art. So I need to accomplish this thing. And I realize Atlanta, you might do a little bit different in accomplishing this thing versus, you know, the folks in Guam. Um, as long as this gets done, and here's what it looks like when what is done, defining that success criteria, so to speak. Um, so, so sort of letting some of the, the art, you know, much like a maintenance person as well. Um, there might be, you know, I fix an engine and I might do things a little differently, or maybe there's a couple things I do in a different order than you, but ultimately, did we get the engine fixed? So that's where we try to stay out of the art. Um, now, if there are situations where, say, there's a, a tool being built where we, we need to factor in those nuances, then, then absolutely, then, you know, there are cases where you need to document those scenarios, and then you look at those scenarios and are are there areas where we can standardize? You know, so you do it this way, uh, Atlanta, and you do it this way, Guam. Um, is there any reason why we can't do it the same way? You know, these two steps are a little different over here. Um, and sometimes it's the answer is, no, we've just always done it that way. Sure, we can't. So, so sometimes you do want to ask the question, can I, you know, can I standardize these? And then there are, there are cases too where there's those nuances. If, if we need to document those um, to make sure the requirement's not missed, we, we will. But I, I certainly try to avoid those. So again, I go for the 85 percentile first. Otherwise, you you know, get some quick wins. And, um, and then as far as the art, sort of try to leave the art alone. If, if you can yeah. Le leaving them a little bit of wiggle room on, on a local basis to figure out how they can match up with the success criteria, as you said, which I think was a great way that you described that and, and let that last leg of their journey be kind of determined by what makes sense for them and their environment and, and all of that nuance that exists there. Yes, like like you said at the beginning, these are these are definitely thinking roles. These are thoughtful roles that um, there's a, a lot that goes into it. So um, you know you don't want to necessarily engineer out that thinking piece. There's still that human element where we need them to to do things and make decisions because it, it's it's changes constantly. Yeah, for sure, that makes a lot of sense. So Todd, when we talked in our prep call, you, you were talking about some of the. Um, enhancements and, and you talked about the um, maintenance being very paper-based and that transition into technology. And I'd like to, to pull on that thread a little bit. Is, is there maybe more you can share with us about just kind of the, the original state where you're trying to get to uh, beyond what I just said of just kind of automating those processes? Can you share a little bit more with us about that? Yeah, yeah, certainly. It's, and it's, it's been a while since I was involved with that. So kind of going from memory. So the so originally, and I think some of this started before I got to United, but um, everything was was very paper based. 
you are required to have um, a number of things, manuals in paper, and uh, as companies like, like Boeing make make updates, you you need to have those updates, um, and the books need to be uh, intact. So ripping a page or two out isn't necessarily um, smiled upon. So um, so getting those books and then being able to to do their work, but then doing the manual paperwork. So I do some work on the plane, but then there's there's a lot of paperwork to sign off on that. I, I did the work, it's been inspected, it's been done correctly and, uh, and, and documenting that. So, you know, a matter of doing the work, going back to the desk to do the paperwork, coming back to the aircraft. So a lot of that, the paperwork and those and the manuals and so forth were put into these, into iPads so that uh, allowed a lot of these texts to, to be mobile so they can do things right there and get, you know, schematics and blowouts. Um, we got involved because there was still a lot of areas that were very heavily paper-based as well. So, um, you know, for, for us, it was, we did some work as far as watching, you know, what, what they were doing in the maintenance space. Actually, somebody on my, my team did this. So going to actual maintenance spaces and following the various roles around is sort of see like, when are they using paper? What is that paper? Um, you know, how critical, well, I shouldn't say how critical, of course it's critical, but right. um, how, what's the potential of, of getting that digitized? Is it something we can digitize? Cause there's, uh, it's easy to say, well, sure. I'll just put it all digital, but um, finding there were some things. So back to like, you asked me at the beginning about the challenge and you have this sort of, you know, I have so much geography on a, on a, on a mobile device um there were certain blueprints and schematics where, where frankly it's a lot harder on uh, to put it on on something this small when it's you know a blueprint size i have you know three feet by two feet um easy to see that you know so yep. we we also want to make sure we avoid mistakes that i can see the schematic and can i can see a wiring diagram uh, and it's clear versus you know needing to get the magnifying glass out yeah no that that makes a, a whole lot of sense. And I, I imagine that there are, so, so I, I can think about that just in terms of device implications, right? Which devices should we be using? Um, you know, should it be a smartphone format? Should it be a tablet? Should it be a full-size laptop, right? So just the idea of saying, hey, it's digital now, isn't enough of an answer for that because you do have a hardware component to say what is the most appropriate. Um, and so I've, I've been through some of those conversations, but the other thing that comes up a lot in the airlines is that the regulatory environment is, uh, strict. Thank you. You know, thank goodness that it is, it's yeah. such a safe industry. Um, but how did that affect, like, were there regulatory compliance issues? Like you, you can say, Hey, that the tech can sign off quote unquote on the paperwork digitally. But if the FAA requires that there be a, a physical paper trail of that, then even though you could do it. From a technology standpoint doesn't mean that you can do it from a regulatory standpoint did that impact how you were implementing that technology for those men and women on the front lines yeah that's a good question yeah i'm sure and I'm, I'm sure it absolutely did so that's sort of the earlier comments of making sure you have the right people in in the room so yeah we we could certainly go forward and say we're going to digitize this but we need to make sure we have somebody there be it from our legal department or uh, somebody who's a liaison with the faa to be able to, to ask that those questions and be able to clarify yeah. Um, hey, are we allowed to do this? Is this, is this okay? Uh, unfortunately, those you know some of those organizations are for change and innovation. So um, yeah, absolutely, that that plays a factor as well. And you mentioned one other thing that kind of spurred a thought too is that there's different flavors and types of maintenance people too. So like you met your comment about does it make sense to have a laptop or a desktop or, or a mobile device? So. You have some you have some maintenance folks that are more stationary, where they don't they don't really move around a lot, and they and you know, they could have a computer on a on a cart or something like that. Versus you do have others that are very mobile that they're all around and they're getting up in the engine and and you know for them. So um, you have to factor that in as well as this maintenance person over here. Their job might be very different than this maintenance person over here. So yeah, things you don't you can't necessarily go with a broad brush and say. Everybody's getting iPads because in the end, you're going to have a few out there techs who are going to go, I can't use that thing. I'm walking yeah. back to the office. Totally. And I think, uh, you know, another thing that you said earlier is, is soliciting feedback from some of the end users. And I, I've had, I, so I love that you talked about actually going out to the maintenance space and, and actually talking with the men and women that would be affected by this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think there's a, a great 
much value to be gained from asking for feedback in terms of what they want. But I've also experienced that sometimes what they say they want isn't necessarily the best solution to the problem. And sometimes that can only be vetted out by doing some type of proof of concept or a pilot to actually, you know, put some things in their hands. Um, there is still a physical aspect of technology for frontline workers because they have to hold something and interact with a display and potentially keyboard, or maybe you're asking them to type up a full report after they've replaced that engine. And now you just gave them a tablet where typing is kind of difficult, right? So yeah. they, they thought they wanted a tablet because it was easy and portable and easy to use right up to the point where they had to type that report. And they were like, okay, this is, this is more difficult than I thought it was going to be, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I love that you talked about just, you know, getting the team out there to go witness, you know, a day in the life. I always refer to them as field trips, taking a field trip out to see where the users are, the environment that they work in, the tools that they're using and stuff like that so that we can make better recommendations. And, and now from a, a change management standpoint, think of how, how different is what we're talking about going to be from the way that they're doing things before. And you've talked about throughout this conversation today. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, um, and I agree with the, the doing the proof of concepts in the pilot because you can learn a lot from those site visits. Um, and there might be instances where they're, if they're not 100% sure and, and, until they get that in their hands. So um, we absolutely do a lot of these, you know, these small tests out to make sure that, you know, is this the right technology? And, and or let's try a few. We heard, we heard a number of key themes. So we're going to try these two or three devices and we, you know, we want to get your feedback. And I think too, in getting that feedback, also important to have you know some thought around what's that survey look like. What what information do I want to specifically ask? Otherwise, you might just get eh, it's fine, it's good. Right. Um, versus asking very specific questions as far as when you had to do this, you know, did you find it harder? Easy, you know, giving giving something so you have a little bit of science behind those surveys to tell you, you know, ultimately how how responsive and how, how positive is the the response to your solution. Yeah. So if you were brought in as a, as a consultant, as a coach to a team that was about to roll out technology to frontline workers, what would be some of the, the top most important pieces of advice that, that you would give them or gotchas to look out for as they embark on that journey? Yeah, so... Um... Well, I would I would first start by making sure they understand their their customer, their you know, and that voice of customer, voice of employee. So, um, you know, who who are those groups, and what's it, what's it like a day in the life in their in their shoes, um, and and making sure you don't necessarily miss any. We've we've done some some things recently at United where um, you're realizing. I can't just talk to a gate agent. We'll keep coming back to gate agents, but um, I also need to talk to a lead gate agent because their role is slightly different than a gate agent. And I need to maybe talk to the supervisor because their role is also different as far as how, you know, how they do things. Um, so making sure you're not necessarily missing any of those small nuances that you might, might otherwise ignore. So, so taking the time to go out there and sort of see and understand, but also that, are they ready for change? Are they right for change? Um, and are you hearing complaints and grumbling? That those again are the signs that there's 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 readiness for change. Um, as you start to implement that change, knowing what's the impact going to be, small, medium, large change, let that drive your communications. Let that drive your your training as well. Um, I think some gotchas as far as the communications, I'll pause there a second, um, how you communicate that. So um, there's this tendency to email blast everybody <laughs> a change. At United, if I'm on the ramp, probably not checking my email very often at all because I'm not at a desk. I, I have a small device, so not, not great. Um, same with pilots. And I, I'm, I think I could be wrong, but I think even in the pilot contract, I don't think they're even necessarily required to read and respond to emails. Um, generally they do, but um, so I think too, is you, you know, communications is certainly a part of the change management. So um, if you want them to know about the change, you have to go outside the normal channels of how they get their information. So if, uh, for example, I know that most of the time everybody's ignoring email or most of the time you're getting an email about this change, if it's a big change, 
Maybe I have a town hall. Maybe I have a special presentation. Um, maybe I do tent cards in the break room. Uh, for some of our groups, the most effective way is to put something on their bulletin board at the airport. Um, some supervisors and managers have, you know, these little little talks with with their team where they'll just kind of highlight important things. So making sure you're you're on that talk. Um, pilots have a specific system they go into for bidding and getting their rewards. So if it's real important, I can actually put a note or message right in there. So when the pilot goes into bid on a on a flight, he or she can go, oh, they're making that change. Okay, good to know. Um, so I think there's kind of a, a, a gotcha. And then I think as far as the implementation as well, so sort of going further in is making sure that they feel like they're part of that change. So by talking to them, make sure like they, they, they have a, a role in getting that change moving. Um, another big part of a change management person is, is as well to, to shape the path, get those obstacles out of the way, know who is, for your change, who is against your change? So you want to build those those champions. There's this, I think, this concept of Lou and Force model, where you have some people trying to roll a boulder up the hill, and you have people on the other end trying to push the boulder back down the hill. So um, as you're doing your change, do these surveys. Go in and check how's it going. Um, what do you feel about this change? Make sure they understand the with them. What's in it for me? Why is this a positive thing for them? What are they going to get out of it? Um, and you want to try to get as many people on the other end of that help you push that boulder up. So when I have these forces for change, I'm, you know, I want to include them. And if I if I sort of have those who are are spoiling it or against it, is there any way I can sort of start to pair them up with um, with those for it or get them to be for it? Because um, you need a you need just a few people who are really against your your post your change that'll start to sour things quick for you. Yeah, to blow it up. You know, you, you've mentioned a couple of times how much interest there is in this change from the folks that you're asking to change. And, and I, I've really been thinking about it as you've told different stories throughout this conversation. I, I was, again, in the airline business, I was a part of one of the first EFB projects, electronic flight bag yeah. uh, projects, where um, we were helping the pilots replace that 30 something pound flight bag with, you know, a one pound iPad. And I was excited to be a part of that project. And uh, it was very different than a lot of the other mobile technology projects I had been a part of because the appetite for that change was so great that it greased the skids on a lot of things. We still had barriers. We still had FAA approvals that the team had to go through. And there was a lot of things that had to be done from our project standpoint that made that project complicated. Uh, not the least of which is the software companies that built all the software for that and everything else. But there was a huge appetite by the users. They could not wait to drop those bags. And there's a maintenance issue of having to change out the um, I forget what they were all called, but the, the information in the binders that are in those flight bags, right? It was a very manual process and they had to go back into the pilot's room and change out all that documentation and stuff like that. And it was it was a pain in the butt. Yeah. So the idea of, of going to this group of users and saying, hey guys, we're going to be able to replace that with this, this iPad made of glass and everything you need is always there and always updated. Like they, it was a, a big appetite for that change. And so that in contrast, to other things uh, that I've been a part of, like bag scanning, for example, where there was not quite the same appetite for the users to implement bag scanning, right? So, you know, you got same companies, uh, different worker profiles inside the same company, different job roles and stuff like that. But one case, the desire to change was very strong. They wanted to change. It couldn't happen fast enough. We couldn't execute fast enough and get that new technology in their hands. The other there was a, a lot of resistance to the change because they just didn't want to change the way that they were doing things. And they didn't feel like there was as much in it for them as yeah. there might've been for the pilots, you know? Yeah. I, and I think again, they're probably like for the bags getting, you know, you have to go find that with them. What's in it for me. And yeah. what's the, there's a little bit, sometimes there's a little bit of selling, but finding that those, those yes. positives as far as, and getting them to acknowledge those those pain points if, if they don't necessarily see the pain it's it's harder it is i i agree and and i talked to this on another podcast uh just this week actually that sometimes there's not much in it directly for them i think sometimes we have to admit that to ourselves i i know that's something i struggle with because i'm i'm a positive guy and i want to spin around the optimism on on every case but mm -hmm. sometimes that individual 
is making a change that may be a net detractor to them. It may actually take them a little bit more time to do their job. It may be a little bit of an extra pain in the butt. But in the case of bag scanning, it makes the weights and balances process faster, and it allows me to find a, a mishandled bag a little bit faster on the back end, right? So there are downstream implications of that that are good for the business, that are good for customer experience, that are good for other processes, even if the men and women that are actually handling the bags themselves had to pay a little price in terms of you know their discomfort, there's a, a bigger picture. But that is, as you said, it's, it's a bit of a tough sell, right? You have to explain mm -hmm. to them that even though this is maybe slowing you down a touch, there are downstream implications that you may not see or be aware of, but it's a huge impact for the business and that you're a part of by doing this new thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really neat stuff. Well, man, I, we have, uh, we've run out of time and I had a bunch more questions that I wanted to ask you. Um, I told you that I would get very excited talking about uh, the airline business. It's, it's yeah. truly, and I don't say this to every guest, um, but it's truly one of the, the favorite businesses that I have worked around uh, throughout my career. I find it to be just so fascinating in the complexity. Uh, I, I tell people all the time, you know, you hear stories about a mishandled bag here and again. And I'm like, man, if you've ever been under the belly of an airport and seen how the bag handling happens, like you should be more surprised that most of the time they actually end up exactly where they're supposed to be. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's yeah. such a fascinating business. And I know guys, you guys have in the industry have been through hell over the last two years of, of trying to keep, you know, things move in under just unprecedented circumstances and stuff like that. So kudos to you and, and all the other members of your team for, you know, keeping the planes running to the best that you were able to do uh, with or without passengers on the planes and stuff like that. I know it's just been a crazy time. So uh, it's been really yeah. uh, great getting to, to talk through with you today. Well, likewise, I, I, this was a lot of fun. I, I love talking about this stuff. I could probably I could talk another hour uh, if yeah. we wanted to and uh, appreciate the comments. This certainly has been a rough couple of years, but uh, certainly never letting a, a good crisis go to waste. It's been amazing the stuff that we've been able to implement and change and as, as quickly as we've, we've been able to change it with the, yeah. with the pandemic. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of great things that if you fly United, hopefully you're, you're noticing some of these, these great uh, changes. Un unprecedented amount of change in a very short amount of time. And, um, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's just been absolutely fascinating, but I think your business has been impacted, you know, disproportionately. And, um, it does feel like we're on the backside of, of some really good things, notwithstanding what's going on in Eastern Europe right now, but, you know, kind of from a COVID standpoint, um, you know, it, it does feel like things are starting to settle. I'm hearing more about events and business travel and stuff like that. So I'm optimistic that 2022 is, uh, the year of the rebound. Yep. I, I am too as well. So, yeah. well, I, I thank you for having me today. This, this was a lot of fun. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Same here, Todd. Well, I do need to wrap it up there. So uh, to the audience, I hope you found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. This has been a really good one because uh, I really do enjoy a lot about the, uh, the airline business, but uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it as well. If so, please share and rate the biz, uh, the podcast, not the business, but the podcast. Um, Five-star ratings do help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skillful.com. That's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. And we're always looking for new guests on the show. So if you, the audience, or you, Todd, know of others that are out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story. And uh, hopefully we'll see them on the next episode. Todd, thanks again for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. 